Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this is part two of Murder She Watched, our two-parter on women detectives on television. Yeah, in our last episode, we gave you sort of a rundown of the history of where these lady detective characters originated. Thank you, Victorians. And how second wave feminism sort of ushered in this amazing era of women on television. Although we've sort of had a long way to go to go from somebody like uh, Angie Dickinson's character on Police Woman to Cagney and Lacey to shows like Murder, She Wrote and Prime Suspect. That's right. And speaking of Murder, She Wrote, we're going to kick things off by talking about the importance of Jessica Fletcher, one of my most just personally beloved TV characters, crime solving or not, on television. We could talk about Cagney and Lacey forever, but we have to move on and mention one of the women who featured so prominently in our childhoods, which is Jessica Fletcher on Murder, She Wrote, which aired from 1984 to 1996. Yeah, she's sort of described as a Miss Marple figure. We mentioned earlier in the podcast how her portrayal of Miss Marple in 1980 sort of seeded this idea for J.B. Fletcher. But she's a Miss Marple who is maybe a little more fierce and also, though, like Marple, relies on her feminine grandmotherliness. She's uh, J.B. Fletcher gets she can get riled up sometimes. Yeah. But for the most part, she's. Relatively soft-spoken, she bicycles around Cabot Cove, she wears rad cardigans, she's always clacking away on her typewriter, now I'm just listing all the things I love about Murder, She Wrote. Well, I mean, she's an incredible character, like, here she is, I think she was retired, I believe, and she starts writing novels, it's just a whim, like, she's she writes something and her grandson takes it away and sends it off, and suddenly she's this world-famous writer, she travels the globe, solving crimes as she goes, and, and just like Miss Marple, I mean, you wouldn't look at Jessica Fletcher slash uh, Angela Lansbury and think like, uh, she's a detective. She's an investigator. I got to watch out for that one. She's she flies under the radar. And it's significant, too, that she is a widow. Her Mm -hmm. husband dies that like frees up more time for this writing. And Slade Somner over at the all uh, wrote a pretty funny essay about watching, going back and watching all of murder. She wrote and uh, Slade wrote, she's a, quote, feminist blueprint a strong, confident icon, leading by example, by actions, by deeds, not slogans or words or academic blabber. She's not equal to men. She exceeds their intellectual capacity. She outfoxes them at every turn. And that is true. It, it Usually the plot lines involve a murder happening. There are so many murders, by the way. Don't ever go to Cabot Cove. <laughs> you will die. Um, but a murder happens. And then, of course, it's the male police chief, or if she's uh, traveling abroad, it's a male constable, and they don't know what to do. J.B. Fletch has to step in and be like, guys, guys, guys. J.B. Fletch. I got this. <laughs> Let me put on my giant glasses. I wonder, I'm sure Jessica Fletcher t-shirts and other swag exist, but I wonder if there is one that says just J.B. Fletch, and maybe Angela Lansbury as a cartoon with wearing like, glasses. We need this to happen, as what I'm saying. Yes, if it doesn't we're going to make it. Someone somehow do this. But the cool thing, too, 
that kind of blew my mind, even though obviously she was an older woman when she started this role. But considering how successful Murder, She Wrote was and how long it was on the air, she started when she was 56 and finally ended the show when she was 71. How often do we see outside of, say, the Golden Girls or Betty White on, you know, Hot in Cleveland, which Mm -hmm. is about to to end how often do we see 71-year-old women starring in their own shows? Mm, yeah, no, you, you don't. And that's why I think it was Summer at uh, the All who was arguing that, hey, it, I mean, it's great that you're giving Betty White all of this love and these accolades and this, like, pop culture obsession, but I was about to say Jessica Fletcher, but Angela Lansbury deserves the same attention and affection because she was also such a groundbreaker. Well, and she's still doing so much, too. Yeah. She's performing on stage and... I hopefully still solving crimes. And <laughs> I kind of like to think that that Angela Lansbury, when she is at home, does, you know, pull up to a typewriter and click clacks away. I like I like that image, too. But uh, one one female character, one investigative lady that we have to talk about who doesn't fit the Miss Marple rely on your grandmotherliness factor That would be Helen Mirren in the British show Prime Suspect, which ran from 1991 to 2006. And the show was actually produced by a woman, Sally Head, and written by a woman, Linda LaPlante, in addition to starring Helen Mirren. Yeah, and Mirren's character has to face misogynistic police, kind of per usual at this point. And also, though... She's not alone. She has a lover, a, a man in her life, who is not so keen on how her life starts changing once she heads her first murder investigation. So that's also an interesting dynamic to bring into it as well of how, you know, a lot of times it's the, you know, frustrated wife or girlfriend feeling neglected at home while the guy is out working all hours. But this is the role reversal here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... uh and in this Telegraph article we were reading about lady detectives in general, but prime suspects specifically, they were talking about how the show is very clear in depicting the struggle that she she faces. It's not easy for her to deal with this constant barrage of misogyny from within her own department and also the problems at home. And so she's often depicted just like chain smoking or she's in the hall, you know, having a heavy sigh. She's about to enter a room full of male detectives, you know, but but the audience does get to watch her become eventually an accepted and respected figure in the department. And probably due to the success of shows like Murder, She Wrote and Prime Suspect, even though clearly they're very different kinds of shows, but nonetheless, female fronted and all about, you know, women solving crimes, the modern landscape of lady detectives on TV is quite rich with all sorts of characters. And also there's lots to talk about in terms of feminism as well. Um, In the summer of 2003, for instance, Women were regular members of investigating teams on nine network and cable TV series. Again, it's just incredible how this particular genre on TV is so 
women welcoming. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to be the person who just sits here and lists shows, but you've got shows like Castle. You have shows not only like Law & Order SVU, but CSI. There's like 50 million CSI shows. Um, you could list Bones in with that, even though that's yeah. a little more forensics. But still, but it's, still, it's investigating. It is. It's investigative women. And of course, one of the w- most well-known American detective names is Olivia Benson of Law & Order SVU. Not just Taylor Swift's cat, Olivia Benson, but the actual Olivia Benson. Uh, played by the wonderful Mariska Haggerty. And Emily Nussbaum over at The New Yorker describes her as a Xena with empathy. Yeah, SVU debuted in 1999 and was a far cry from the original 1990 premiering Law & Order, which, like we mentioned earlier, starred no women. Uh, Dick Wolf had to be kind of reminded that, yes, women also play a role in in legal professions in the United States. Um, but not everybody loves SVU. And before we get into um, some of the analysis from it, honestly, Caroline, I have a hard time watching SVU sometimes. You know, I, my, this is weird. I don't, but I'll admit it. Uh, my boyfriend and I will binge watch SVU. We both had this moment of like, <gasps> when we realized the other one's obsessed with it. So I love it. And, and, for your average run-of-the-mill SVU episode, I can watch a thousand of them, but it recent. I feel like it recently uh, a, n- a new season recently started, and I don't re- I don't know what the last season how it ended. But when it came back on, there was an episode that featured Olivia Benson, the character, like having been assaulted and held hostage and raped and and all of this terrible stuff. And even that, I'm like, okay, I can I can watch this. That's that's all right. But it wasn't until later in the show when her attacker was just absolutely toying with her in court. I actually, I actually made my boyfriend turn the show off. I was like, this is too, this is too much for me. This is making my heart race. Well, I think that that incident in SVU of uh, Olivia Benson being attacked and assaulted was something that Nussbaum called out in terms of a turning point mm-hmm. of its watchability. And it's because of its focus largely on sexual crimes, rape, violence against women, that there are critics who think that SVU portrays a kind of misogynistic feminism because it does include in some episodes false claims of rape, negative portrayals of feminine characteristics, um, also having uh, women's jealousy of each other being motivations for crime rather than just the, the the lust for the crime itself. So there are definitely people on both sides of the SVU fence. But nonetheless, Olivia Benson is a character we'll get back to in the second half of the podcast because despite all of the the kinds of crimes and perhaps the sometimes questionable ways that they are portrayed on the show, she herself is also fits in this uh, broader female detective characterization of being both strong and also having a backstory that plays into her strength and also why we probably as viewers gravitate to her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the risk of going on and on for hours about amazing women on amazing detective shows, we do have to mention before we break uh, the fact that 
The Brits are kicking butt with the number of amazing lady detective characters that they have. People like the fabulous Gillian Anderson, who's starring in The Fall, which I need to watch, but which I've also heard is incredibly intense in terms of the sexual violence it portrays. Um, also, Olivia Coleman and Broadchurch, Leslie Sharp and Saran Jones and Scott and Bailey, etc., etc., etc. There are just a lot of rich amazing, colorful lady detective characters on television, if you're willing to Netflix them. Yeah, I've also heard um, that Bletchley Circle is one to watch as well. And it's not just in Britain. we got to give props to New Zealand for Top of the Lake, directed uh, by Jane Campion, which is significant, mm-hmm. and also starring the fantastic Elizabeth Moss. That show is incredible. And that's another show which I think is a good example of what Kristen and I will talk about after the break in terms of using sexual violence as the crux of the show, but also having a main female detective character who is inspired and driven by her own past as a survivor of assault. So we want to talk more about the use of gender and femininity in this traditionally masculine role of the detective because there are some really fascinating ways that this plays out on screen. Yeah, because these characters typically have, have never, from, from the Victorian novels that we had, that we talked about at the top of the podcast, they've never just been detectives. They've always been women detectives, or as we're calling them, lady detectives. And one thing that those Victorian novels in particular really played up was the issue of, of things like feminine intuition, uh, the fact that they solved cases using that very feminine trait of empathy, meaning that their sex, their femaleness was definitely part of their lives, part of their profession and worked in their favor. And it's really not so different from the shows that we see today. Yeah. And and that whole use of a reliance on feminine intuition is one of the negative critiques on shows like uh, Law and Order SVU. But Honestly, and maybe it's because we did a podcast a while back on women's intuition and kind of looking into the science of it and where it came from. I don't see it as a negative necessarily. No, I don't think that women should be perceived as uh, wise and capable only because we have this sixth sense possibly related to our menstrual cycles or something like that. But I, I think it. I don't think there's anything wrong with it because a lot of intuition is just meaning that we're possibly paying attention to maybe emotional currents running through rooms and things that other people might not pay attention to. I think I think there's a very interesting multi-layered argument to be made about that, because on the one hand, like, okay, they're using feminine intuition. They're using these these natural, quote unquote, natural feminine attributes or whatever. We derive it from the moon, Caroline. That's right. When the moon is full, it (laughs) replenishes our intuition. (laughs) Right. But on the other hand, I mean, is it better or worse to have a female detective character who's playing off of or or using so-called natural traits? Or is it better to have a woman who is completely stripped of feminine attributes and just shoved into a male character role? I mean, you could argue either way that one is better than the other. But I mean, Let's not begrudge a woman of being a woman or being womanly or being feminine. Exactly. Um, And this whole gendering, that question that you just raised of, uh, you know, whether it's 
that versus sort of shoving a woman into just a masculine role. Uh, Kathleen Murray, in her 2014 dissertation for the University of Pittsburgh, looked into this aspect of gendering and whether they can just be detective shows or whether they will always be lady detective shows. Yeah, she writes basically that the investigating woman character interrupts the smooth running of the detective film genre because they disrupt, they fundamentally disrupt, she says, this narrative upon which genre films depend. So basically, she's arguing that lady detectives are both of the detective film genre and outside of it because so many detective films or shows or whatever are also pulling in these very quote unquote again like feminine attributes relying on uh female intuition but also sometimes when you pair a woman detective with a male detective there has to be it almost like it's ordained that like there has to be uh this sexual tension between the two and so that sort of inevitably and unavoidably leads to a slightly different bent on a traditional genre yeah, and this is something, too, that Linda Majewski talks about in Hard Boiled and High Heeled, um, which was a resource that we relied a lot on. Um, she talks about how it can be shocking, and not to mention sexual, when the detective genre switches gender in that way. Yeah. And then when it comes to shows like The Closer, Saving Grace and Damages, oh, my God, do not get my mother started on The Closer. She's obsessed with it. She thinks it's so great. But, you know, I'm not just saying that to just to say it. But the whole issue with The Closer, with the character of Brenda, is that she's a hard hitting, super smart, super tough woman who's also super feminine and Southern, y'all. She's, like, super proper. And so my somebody like my mother just, like, salivates over that. She loves it. She eats it up. And as Tanya L- Lavelle Banks writes in a chapter in the book, Law and Justice on the Small Screen, it's impossible to separate the gender of these particular characters from the role they're playing. So... Brenda Lee Johnson's femininity in The Closer is critical to her character, just as her toughness and general awesomeness is. And so Banks writes that the women aren't just replacing male characters in these shows. Their character flaws are just judged through a gendered lens. They are very much women. Like the character of Grace in Saving Grace had all sorts of problems. She definitely had a lot of character flaws. But I mean, she was also just like, such a woman. And I, I don't mean that. I know that sounds weird, but there was no there were no two bones about it. Like she was not being shoved into a male role and all of her feminine traits ignored. Like she had very woman specific issues that she dealt with. Yeah. And and Banks also ties in damages in this analysis, which is uh, more a, a show about lawyers and just outright crime than detectives, but, uh, and she talks about Glenn Close's character in that, and Glenn Close is by no means a detective, but she's a great example of this, of, I mean, she's, she's almost masculine in her ruthlessness, but she is, it doesn't feel like she's sacrificing anything, it doesn't feel like the characters were like, uh, well, we wanted a dude to play this, but Glenn Close will do, (laughs) we'll just change the names in it. Um, but one thing too about a lot of just detective characters in general, I think they are often portrayed as 
loners. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about Matthew McConaughey and True Detective. Mm-hmm. When you toss gender into that and you have women as detectives, um, analysts talk about how that's that makes them kind of doubly alone. They're sort of outliers of the outliers at that point, which is interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in terms of performing femininity. We talk, we've talked a lot about performing gender on the podcast before, but Kathleen Murray talks about how the investigating woman performs femininity explicitly as a performance, something that she can shift and adjust based on her needs. Murray writes, it's a tool at her disposal and sometimes a trap from which she cannot escape. And this quote brought to mind somebody like a Miss Marple or a Jessica Fletcher character, somebody who operates very much within her femininity and performing their femininity to such a degree that they are perceived as harmless completely. Well, and the appearance factor, too, that a lot of People who have focused in on, you know, this genre and really dug into it, such as Linda Majewski, who wrote Hard Boiled and High Heeled, do pay attention to how these women detectives are portrayed in their in their outer trappings, because there has been an evolution from, say, um, Angie Dickinson in Police Woman having to wear gowns sometimes and bikinis to still, though, one thing that. I really love about Olivia Benson's character in Law and Order SVU is that she always wears incredibly flattering blouses, even still. And I know that sounds like a, that might be a strange thing to say that I really love, but I feel like that is so much part of her character. And mm-hmm. in the Telegraph, one of the Telegraph articles that we were reading about um, female detectives on British television, there was a lot of talk of their signature clothing pieces as well. There are lots of silk blouses mm-hmm. and well-fitting blazers. And it, I think it is still part of this. In the same way, though, that you have... You know, a lot of detectives in the past sort of have their their costume. I mean, you have Columbo and his dirty trench coat mm-hmm. or Dick Tracy and his trench coat. OK, there are just lots of trench coats. Yeah, exactly. But one of the most fascinating hallmarks of more contemporary fictional female detectives, unlike, say, a Miss Marple or a J.B. Fletcher or, or maybe just, you know, that whole spinster type of detective is that I feel like there's there are more character flaws in detectives today, which I think is a sign of progress of showing these women as fully realized characters with baggage. Yeah, a lot of these characters are victims of abuse themselves or they are avenging the suffering of family members like Grace from Saving Grace or Olivia Benson from SVU, Olivia Dunham from Fringe, Temperance Brennan from Bones, uh, Kate Beckett from Castle. And the purpose, basically, is that it's often used to explain why characters have trouble forming connections. You have to explain why a woman can't be in a romantic relationship. But it's also, uh, as Jess McCabe from Bitch writes, it's also often the crack in the character's strong woman armor that ends up inviting in the almost inevitable male love interest. I mean, just watching Castle, like, that's all it is, is sexual tension. Yeah, I mean, and if you flip the roles, too, if you have the kind of loner male detective I think it's it is also too that baggage that tends to draw in 
the a female mm-hmm. love interest. Sure. And then, of course, because of that baggage, a lot of them end up exhibiting self-destructive behaviors. Sarah Lund from The Killing, Kima Greggs from The Wire. They end up struggling between making time for family and dedicating themselves to the job, which can, of course, lead to destructive behavior like drinking, etc. And it's important to talk about because except for Get Christy Love, we really have not touched on the race and ethnicity aspect of this, that so many of these detectives in being in these uh, very traditionally masculine roles tend to be very conventionally attractive, cisgender, uh, able-bodied white women. Yeah, you do have some age diversity, obviously. Um, But yeah, Kima is a rare example, not only though, a woman of color in one of these roles, but also an LGBT character. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, that's also something that we haven't talked about much at all. And there was, I forget which source it was, who was talking about Rizzoli and Isles and how they secretly longed for there to be a lesbian romance yeah. between the two. Because that is something that you don't see too much. It is very, it is a very heteronormative genre at this point. Yeah, I think it was a list from She Wired about all of the different female detective, the hot female detective characters who uh, the writer was longing to be actually lesbian characters, whether they're in love with their partner or whatever. And they even had a clip of Rizzoli being, you know, like, quote unquote, butch or whatever, as she's helping her father fix something and how attractive it is. Well, Angie Harmon. But over at The Guardian, they were arguing that perhaps these character flaws wouldn't be such taboos if the characters were men, mainly because when you have a character like Sarah Lund from The Killing, her whole thing is that, you know, she's going to quit her job. She's going to move away. She's got a son that she needs to take care of. But she often can't be there for her son. She arrives at family occasions late. She ends up being really curt. And that's what men with important jobs do all the time, they write. They said it's easier for them to break the rules since they made them in the first place. Indeed, the rule-breaking, the violence, and the hard drinking seem part of what makes them effective detectives. Women's behavior, by contrast, is judged against the norm of their male colleagues. It can never be invisible, never taken for granted. Although, I will say, as an extension of that article, of or that argument of it can never be taken for granted... Um, I, I don't know that I'm fighting for rude behavior to ever just be taken for granted, though. No, but I think it's it's unfortunate that it's somehow 50 times worse if a woman's doing it than if a man's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just portrayed as like shocking and horrific if a woman's late to pick up her son from soccer practice versus a man. Yeah. Um. Well, and that I think that, too, is maybe what makes these more modern female detectives like Elizabeth Moss on top of the lake, even more fascinating to us because Mm -hmm. they do embody a lot of these, what we would just think of as sort of normal outsider dude detective kind of characteristics. Right. Like one scene from top of the lake that really stick stuck with me is when she's in a bar and these guys are kind of picking on her and um, they ask, are you a feminist? Are you a lesbian? And they say that, you know, you'd have better luck around here as a lesbian because nobody likes a feminist but lesbians. Oh, yeah. Well, and speaking of Elizabeth Moss, quick side note, Caroline, Mm -hmm. that I want to touch on, if only to get uh, listener responses to this. She her name was floated when uh, True Detective season two was kind of going through its casting process and everyone was waiting to see if uh, she would be on it. 
Rachel McAdams was also mentioned as being considered. And I know a lot of people were crossing their fingers for some lady detectives on the next season of True Detective, which we could devote an entire podcast to to talking about the gender representations in that, which, I mean, full disclosure, I loved True Detective, but not everyone was a huge fan of it from a female perspective. Um, so disappointed to see that it's going to be Vince Vaughn and uh, Colin Farrell instead of at least, come on, at least like Vince Vaughn and Elizabeth Moss, Vince Vaughn, Rachel McAdams, Colin Farrell. <laughs> you could take him or leave take him. Take him or leave him. But, um, you know, one thing that we mentioned earlier, especially talking about Olivia Benson on SVU, is the whole sort of rape narrative of using sexual assault as the crux of a show's plot. And a lot of times shows that feature topics like this are depicted as being feminist. Like, hey, we're dealing with the horrors of society, the horrors that face a lot of women. But a lot of folks really take issue with the depiction of violence and family dynamics in this show. Uh, For instance, Emily Nussbaum, who we cited earlier from The New Yorker, and Katie Keller from Jezebel, uh, talk about this. Nussbaum writes that at its greasiest, SVU becomes a string of rape fantasies justified by healing truisms. And Keller writes that while the larger narrative is one of justice prevailing, which is good, it's still using assault for entertainment. And for people troubled by this, it's also the distancing factor of it. I mean, you can it, it's a show that you can pause, turn off. You can cheer when the guy gets arrested or when Olivia Benson does something awesome. But I mean, some say that it can also be therapeutic, whether or not you are a survivor. Uh, someone described it as, quote, a ritualistic confrontation with fear. It's the same kind of thing that we talked about, Caroline, in our episode on why women in particular love true crime series. Yeah. And it's also, too, I think with SVU, the dynamic of Olivia Benson being the product of her mother's rape and how that ties into the show and also women dealing with Women, female victims of sexual assault and mm-hmm. violence. Um, I mean, it's not it's not perfect. No, yeah. it, it's certainly not perfect. Um, but I think there's a lot. There's still a lot of important stuff in there. Sure. Um, and, you know, especially since a lot of TV is just fantasy, right? And there is this fantasy from SVU that the police are always going to be on your side. If you're a victim or a survivor of assault, like it's it's satisfying to watch week after week as the bad guys go to jail and the victims, you know, get justice. Um, but it also features a lot of, quote unquote, bad victim storylines where a promiscuous woman wrongly accuses a man of assault. And it can veer uncomfortably into the gratuitous violence and voyeurism territory. Well, and speaking of the voyeurism territory, um, not to harp on True Detective, but that's that is something that. Uh, people were uncomfortable with in terms of the portrayal sometimes of just the naked, dead female bodies done up in very kind of attractive ways, almost in almost pornographic ways from time to time yeah. in the show. People were like, oh, I don't know about that. So at least in SVU, you have some of the the victims, survivors have a little more agency, at least. Yeah. But one one question that I, I really had never considered before looking into this topic. Um, And when you specifically look, for instance, at Gillian Anderson's show, The Fall, when it comes to women starring in these shows, 
A writer at The Guardian says, I wonder if the series could have gotten away with its portrayal of the sexual torture of women if it hadn't had a strong professional woman at its center. Did Anderson's DCI Gibson legitimize the portrayal of sexual horror? So basically saying, you know, great, you have these strong female detectives at the center of a show, but is it like being used as a gateway to portray so many horrific stories of sexual violence, whereas if a man were at the helm of the show, it would be more uncomfortable for us to watch. I don't think that gender is being used as a tool to legitimize the portrayal of sexual horror. I think that this is more a product of uh, television in general taking more chances, becoming more cinematic, telling richer and sometimes even more horrifying stories than it ever has before. Because, you know, as a lot of people say, TV, TV, television is the new film, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, just look at something like Top of the Lake or or The Fall or even True Detective, just like how, what in-depth and incredibly visual storytelling you have right there. And I think if anything, it's... I I am a fan of the fact that it's a woman leading these these stories. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating to see these women characters leading stories like this now in the in the year 2014. Um especially when you look back at Angie Dickinson or uh Peggy Lipton or or women like that who, you know, were basically there to just kind of be props, essentially. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of ick factor when you have really uh, graphic or horrible sexual violence. Um, but I mean, I think it's a very interesting illustration of how far we've come in the portrayal of women and women's issues. Well, and then it becomes the point of, well, that's more a conversation about the line of what is important to see and confront and what just desensitizes us. But when it comes to these female detective characters, um, maybe it's good in terms of being desensitized to the shock of seeing them in these roles. So maybe, you know, five, ten years from now, lady detectives, lady detective shows will just be detective shows. Yeah. So we had so much to talk about and hopefully you all have lots to talk about to us as well. What are your favorite kinds of women-led detective shows? Who are your favorite detectives? Where are J.B. Fletch fans? Email us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our address. And we didn't even have time to talk about all of the shows and all the detectives. Hello, Veronica Mars. Um, so if there were characters or shows that we didn't mention Please alert us to that. Again, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast and message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. All right. We have a couple of letters here about our vaping episode. This one's from Emmy. She says, I smoked cigarettes for more than 20 years and my partner smoked as well. We have recently quit smoking and what made it possible was e-cigarettes. He prefers the cigarette shape and I prefer the vape pen. Whatever it takes to get off the tobacco, we decided. I've been to three different vapor shops. One was so dude bro I just left. It was more misogynistic than Radio Shack in the 80s. One was fine, geared towards DIY culture and not overly gendered. The one I usually go to is staffed mostly by women, but there are men who work there also. The atmosphere is welcoming, and they answered all of my many, many questions. 
For me, the general idea is that the vaping is a stopgap measure between a pack a day and healthier lungs. Nicotine does nothing to mess around with, and quitting cold turkey is like being dropped into the deepest pit of depression with a side order of migraine. I have enough trouble with depression, so I'm going to taper down. I failed at tapering down my cigarette use because I love smoking, but vaping is just nicotine delivery. I don't love it, but it's enough to keep me off the smokes, even though I have a pack in my desk drawer. Not smoking because I have no cigarettes isn't the same thing as deciding every day that I no longer smoke. I've gone without cigarettes before, but this time I quit. F yeah. I have two weeks of zero cigarettes and only one pack in the month before that. I'm really glad to have the option to vape, at least until I give that up also. So thanks, Emmy. Well, we've got a letter here from Millie about our episode on Is Catcalling Harassment? She writes, Hi, I really like your podcast. I just wanted to say I found your episode on catcalling very interesting. I am just 12. I'm very strong politically viewed and mature, I think. And I have quite the fear of alcohol and drunk people. Before watching, I did watch the 10 Hours in New York video and was very surprised not only at the editing, but the amount of catcalling, especially considering she wasn't doing anything provocative. After watching this video, I was also surprised how little I've noticed catcalling in both New Zealand and Australia. I've lived in both places, even in major centers. Your episode helped me understand why the freaky men in that video said and did the things they did. I really enjoyed this episode, and you guys are awesome. Well, Millie, you are awesome, you 12-year-old who uses provocative correctly. <laughs> and so is everybody who writes in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also find links to all of our social media, blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, with links to all of those books and articles we talked about with lady detectives over at our website, StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 